We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 23rd, 2017. The Al Franken and Charlie Rose and Bill Clinton and Roy Moore and John Conyers should all resign edition. <laughs> I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Slate's New York studio and I'm surrounded by goodness. Uh, John and Emily are getting an early start to their Thanksgiving, but that doesn't matter because we have two great guests to my right, Slate chairman and Trump cast host, Jacob Weisberg. Hello, Jacob. Hello, David. Happy Thanksgiving. Right back at you. And making her gab face debut, producer of This American Life, Zoe Chase. Hello, Zoe. Hello. Welcome Thank to you. Fest. Zoe and I, we were just discussing, have met only once before, mm-hmm. which is that we met on the night of uh, the 2016 election. We were both performing in a Slate Live show at the Bell House. And it was a surreal. It was evening. a surreal evening. I'm glad, Zoe, to reunite with you. <laughs> yeah. On this week's Gabfest, the Republican tax bill has uh, wiggled its way through the House. It will now slither its way through the Senate. Can it get through? Then should Al Franken resign from the Senate? Should John Conyers resign from the House? Should Bill Clinton retroactively resign from the presidency? <laughs> then are magazines dying? Jacob will explain. Maybe he'll explain that they are or aren't. I don't know. I can't wait to find out. I'm waiting. I'm excited to find out, too. <laughs> About 40 minutes from now. Okay. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And reminder, in just uh, two weeks, two weeks, about two weeks, yeah, we're going to have our Political Gab Fest conundrum show live in Boston at the Wilbur Theater on December 6th at 7.30 p.m. We're going to have, they might be giants accompanying us, opening and playing with us. 
So you get a concert and you get conundrums. It's going to be a really fun show. It's always our funnest live show of the year. So please join us, slate.com slash live. There are just a few tickets left. Wilbur Theater, Boston, December 6th, slate.com slash live. According to most recent analysis, I saw about half of all households will get a tax increase from the tax bill the Senate is considering, even though the top 1% is going to get enormous, ginormous tax cuts. The Senate bill is going to be taken up after Thanksgiving. It differs in some respects from the House bill that was passed last week. Uh, Notably, the Senate bill still contains the Obamacare mandate repeal put in as a sweetener for Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and others. But all honest economics, Zoe, suggests the bills under consideration are just basically a massive gift to rich people, not really much of tax reform, little or no benefit to anyone else, and probably also will blow out the budget deficit. Mm. Why, given that, is there still so much Republican enthusiasm for this bill, (laughs) these bills, these two bills? Um, Basically, the whole thing with the Republicans, like, they could have gotten, I think, a lot of people to agree about corporate tax reform, right? And and that seems kind of basic, but they put in all this other stuff along with it that makes it like not reform, like just totally crazy. They have to pass something. They have donors who are expecting them to pass something. They have donors with like very specific priorities. I don't know. Like when I look at the politics of it, I do think it's going to pass. Like I don't think I think the polling around something like a tax bill is not like trustworthy because people want a tax cut. If they think they're not getting a tax cut, then they'll be upset about it. If they think they are, then they'll be happy. They're not like actually responding to the fact that this bill does not pay for itself at all and is going to add like mountains and mountains and thousands of dollars to the deficit. The people in play, right, would be like Susan Collins, Murkowski, although probably not Murkowski anymore. Collins, Paul, Flake, Corker, um, McCain, Johnson. But I just like, I don't see it. Like, I think they're just going to pass it. They just are going to. (laughs) And it's just not, I mean, no, 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 like economists and and no sort of smart writers that I read and and people that I listen to think this is a a smart bill. And, And when I look at it, like, I agree with them. It seems crazy. Well, when you step back, you see a pattern here. The pattern is when Republicans are in power, they pass these massive, irresponsible tax cuts that open up holes in the deficit and create an economic vulnerability for the whole country. And it's win-win from their point of view because eventually Democrats come into power and have to clean up the mess. And part of cleaning up the mess is – cutting spending Republicans don't favor. So there is this star of the beast element to it, which they don't care that it that it creates an enormous deficit liability, even though they say they they care about the deficit and national debt, because to them, that's just the promise of further spending reductions. But this is now happening for the third time. It happened when Clinton had to clean up the Reagan tax cuts. It happened when Obama had to clean up the George W. Bush tax cuts. And the same damn thing is happening again. I mean, the Democrats are being played for such suckers by this phenomenon writ large. And there's very little they can do about it. But I think what's disappointing in a way is that they haven't managed to motivate their base the way they did around the uh, attempted repeal of the Affordable Care Act, at least yet, the best opportunity they have to motivate their base is that Republicans are so greedy and grandiose about trying to get everything they want that in the Senate bill, they've shoehorned this undermining of the Affordable Care Act 
into this tax cut bill, which is like nonsense on top of nonsense. And that may get Democrats motivated enough to do something about it, although the Trump people have shrewdly said they'd be willing to let that go to get the rest of the bill. Right. It's clear that that is it's clear the 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 Trump people are like, take it. Go ahead. They're they They'd be happy to give it up. Um, does that does taking the the mandate uh, repeal out of it, Zoe, does that mm-hmm. make the bill uh, the math, the already <laughs> iffy, sketchy math of it I actually, uh, impossible? Yeah, I actually don't know how they're going to make up for it because the, the math that they're doing now is like so wild. You know, they can't pass anything that's going to add to the deficit over 10 years under this weird sort of configuration that they're in right now. So they put in the affordable, you know, repealing the mandate. Apparently, they've worked it out so that basically because all so you know 13 million or so fewer people have health insurance if this went through and so they've added it up so that somehow the government will be subsidizing less insurance under that so the government will be spending less so that actually makes up for the fact that people won't be having to pay the penalty like it's it's just like the the math is is a real stretch and if they take out the mandate then like I don't know I don't know what they're going to say about it like I it Here's the the bigger thing that I was thinking about with this bill is like like you were saying, Jacob, about the base not being rallied to it. There's this whole feeling that I have with the Senate in, in particular that they're just like out of step with their voters in this kind of fundamental way. And I don't totally understand why that is. Like the Senate, I guess, is supposed to be a more reflective and cooling place to be in general. That's the idea when it was created. But the voters, when they voted in Trump to be the president, were asking for something different, you know, than the thing that that they're being delivered, which is, um, you know, no health insurance and um, tax increase. But only a very small number of these senators were voted in with Trump. And I don't think many of them feel any connection to Trump. I don't think that those voters are who they feel. I agree. But when you look at kind of like what's what's like ahead, their vote. I mean, Jacob, isn't it right that this is a bill for the donor class? This is not a bill for voters. Yeah. I mean, a lot of Republicans and some Democrats campaigned on tax reform, which is a very different idea that somehow morphed into this tax cut. But the idea of tax reform is still a very good idea, which is that you make the tax code simpler and more efficient, but don't change the amount of revenue the government gets. So you reduce all this sort of lobbyist-driven crap that gets into the tax code over time. And by getting rid of that stuff, you can lower rates and simplify it. And then businesses and people don't make their investment decisions on the basis of what they get a tax break for. They invest their money where they think it's going to produce the higher return. That's what you want to do. That's what liberals and conservatives agreed on in 1986, the only time they did a real tax reform bill. But somehow this turned into a grab bag for special interests. I want to go back to your point, Jacob, about how Democrats have done, except for over the mandate, have done a really poor job of making it clear why this bill is is bad for the country. And I think it's that it's a very it's a sort of subtle argument because it involves it involves making people understand that that whatever extra additional cash they may get in their pocket, because everyone will probably get a little bit or most people get a little bit of extra cash in their pocket at first. At first, it comes at the cost of, you know, higher deficits later, higher interest rates later, less government activity later, lower economic activity later. But it's that's a very subtle argument to make. Right. It's it's the argument about borrowing from the future. The argument is that you're creating a liability that is going to fall on your children and grandchildren. And 
that doesn't that flies in the face of the political logic of the bill, which is goodies now, which works for the Republicans who vote for it and, and voters tend to respond to. But it's also very wonky. You know, when you get into these issues, I mean, dynamic scoring, this is how Republicans defend the bill. They say, well, the Trump people say this will pay for itself because of dynamic scoring. Dynamic scoring is the idea that stimulating the economy will produce so much additional growth that the government will get the same amount of revenue. They won't even release their support for this because, of course, it's complete bullshit. But it's also bullshit on a bullshit premise. And the premise is that if you cut taxes, people will work more because they get to keep more of their money. Now, that sounds good, right? I mean, keep more of your money, work more, that's great. But in fact, it also works in exactly the opposite way. If you let people keep more of their money, they work less because they don't have to work as many hours to earn the same amount of income, which is why dynamic scoring, when you look at how it actually plays out, doesn't tend to happen. In fact, there's the opposite risk. If you overstimulate the economy, the Fed has to raise interest rates, you get less economic activity and less growth because of you're going to have you have to factor in a recession. So, but I mean, I think these kinds of arguments are not, they're not primary political arguments. You know, it's very hard right. to get right. Democrats out there in the streets saying no dynamic scoring is <laughs> right. bullshit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What? There was this one actually like, tr- I feel like the Trump selling point, at least with the, the corporate tax cut, they've been like, we're going to do this massive corporate tax cut and that's going to raise your wages. Like that's been this huge point that the White House is pushing. And People aren't really buying that. Like if you look at polls about around that issue, people are like, I don't see that. I'm not sure Wasn't about that. that. Called trickle down. <laughs> I remember hearing that before. <laughs> like, but that's not because of Democrats. That's just people who have like lived and they're like, I'm not gonna trust <laughs> the corporation. You know, they're making a lot of money right now and my wages aren't going up, you know, in the stock market or whatever. But I don't see that's not because there's some message on the other side that I'm seeing. Right. Jacob, you are a historian of the Republican Party and and particularly of the past 40 years or so. Why has supply side economics, why is the the sort of undergirding theology become a theology? Why is conservative economics so detached from empiricism and reality now? How did that happen? Because it works politically in exactly the way I was saying. It's win-win for them. Cutting taxes makes their supporters and their donor base happy. Uh, it it projects future cuts in government the government spending they don't like and they have a way of making it somebody else's problem so they've just figured out a way to make this i think kind of as irresponsible as it is win win and these ideas that started well, it's as, not, but it's not win win for the country why are they willing to have win win in that way but not for the country why is it i mean it's go ahead sorry no, I think it's I think they're very self-interested. And you look at these, you know, Republicans who are clearly voting against their constituent interests. They think they're going to lose in the next election if they're even going to run. And they want jobs lobbying on K Street for future tax breaks for corporations, which is what Republican congressmen do when they lose elections. I mean, it's a crude very materialist argument. But I, I think it's true. I think this party is, is totally self-interested. And it's not that the Democrats are, are pure or inherently better. But I think in this debate, Democrats are thinking, are thinking about the public interest in a way Republicans are thinking about self-interest. I, see, I actually – I'm not sure I agree with that. I, I certainly think there are plenty of them who, who want jobs lobbying. I actually think the more dangerous part is there's a strain of idealism that still runs through Republicans, which is that they – that a lot of them – 
are high on their own supply. A lot of them actually do believe it, but because it's theological, because it's a it's a kind of belief system. It's a libertarian mm-hmm. theology. Yeah, that's how that less Jeff government Flake feels. Yeah, people, like people like Flake and Corker. Like I don't think they're being disingenuous at this point. Like they they have lived their lives trying to make the government smaller and like they're going to do that even though they're going to lose the elections or even though they can't even bother to run for election you know next term because of that yeah i think it is sort of a theology do you you think um this is the first time that i can recall i'm sure that it's not the first time it's happened that there's been a kind of big national bill which has such sort of partisan implications and how it how it impacts people yeah is that a is that going to be the way we legislate now that we're we're so hyper-partisan as a country as a whole i mean i am not a, a tax historian or or a historian of the republican party the way the way jacob is so i can't like don't call me a tax historian that's the meanest thing anybody ever said i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't supposed to be a diss but like you know, so I can't sort of put it in, in context of like how often this kind of split has happened or something. But I do think that there there is this whatever like identity crisis, at least with the Democratic Party, that they're probably having a hard time arguing for the blue states. You know, they're probably having a hard time like making that case because there's a whole sort of movement of the Democrats have left the middle of the country behind. They've just decided to abandon vast swaths of America in favor of like a very kind of, yeah, like cynical concentration of of power and, and, and voter turnout. I don't know. I just imagine that that argument was harder to make for that party this time around. They, they're still confused by how they lost. I, th- I think it's a really interesting point, David, because, you know, historically we've we've dealt with all sorts of things in the American structure of government that pits rural interests against urban interests, northern interests against southern interests. But this kind of democratic interest versus republican interest, which is a different geographic split that doesn't kind of reflect anything else historically, is I think this is one of the first big bills that does that so starkly. All right. Last question. So <laughs> – Zoe, let's say this bill this bill is going to pass. I think it's very unlikely. I don't think there's a Republican who's willing to be the the vote that kills it. Is there any chance? Is there any, you know, happy chance that we're wrong that dynamic scoring works that it does pay for itself? No. Um, but the White House has put forth this idea that I'm really into, which is MAGAnomics. <laughs> and MAGAnomics is just like the best. It sounds, sounds, sounds like a corporation <laughs> that'll get a tax cut from the tax bill. It does. It does. It sounds like a pass through. Um, and it sounds it just like sounds fun to practice MAGAnomics. You know, like it does sound like something exciting is going to happen. Things are going to be like gangbusters. And it's basically the way that that um, Mulvaney describes it, the budget director is, um, did he use the phrase MAGAnomics? Yes. No, he did not. <laughs> yes, for months. Oh my God. For months, I've been talking about MAGAnomics. He says, which I don't think is true because we would have noticed if he had. <laughs> but he calls it the entire package of the president's agenda: pro-growth tax reform, fiscal restraint, regulatory reform, ending abuse by our trading partners, and rebuilding America's infrastructure, which of course doesn't cost any money. Um, and that's the additional growth from all those policies that you're not seeing because you've never seen it before because we've never had MAGA economics before. Not MAGA economics. Sorry. Oh my God. Come on. <laughs> like, I know. I should have been listening to Vic Mulvaney for the last few months. Maganomics, we've never had it before. And once we see the growth that is provided by Maganomics, that is going to answer a lot of unanswered questions that this tax bill raises. Poof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was. I'm into it. Magic. 
We have a Slate Plus segment for lucky Slate Plus members. You lucky Slate Plus members, we do an extra segment that you get with your membership. And today, we're going to be talking about the holidays. We're going to be talking about whether you should, in fact, buy gifts for, for people. Zoe and Jacob are both very subtle economic thinkers. Uh, <laughs> I'm a crude economic thinker. We're going to have an interesting discussion about whether, in fact, this is a thing you should do. You should go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I'm just going to say some a random male name, okay? And by the end of the sentence, I expect this whatever name I reveal, it'll be revealed as a serial creep. Fred Jones. What did Fred Jones do? Ed Finnegan, the senator from the great state of Franklin. So, Charlie Rose, Glenn Thrush, Roy Moore, Al Franken, Bill Clinton, John Conyers. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. The roster of shame groweth every single day. There is, as of yesterday, uh, we're taping on Tuesday morning, I should note. So by the time you listen to this, <laughs> the, oh, Jacob, and I, Jacob and I will probably names. be in prison camps <laughs> that have been set up every, I don't even know, like who knows what will have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, good. What do you think? If you have to make a guess, no, you can't say it. You can't, can't make a guess. About who. More, more members of Congress and Silic- this is headed for Silicon Valley. I'd say, but when, I don't know exactly when it's going to get. I there. don't think it's. I mean, there'll be some in Silicon Valley, but the the Silicon Valley guys tend to be a bit younger. Most of these people are well, fifty five. Well, plus. that just means they have a accumulated rap sheet that goes back decades. There's certainly nothing that that is exempting people in their twenties and thirties. And of course, when you look at the the leaders, the people who run the big companies in Silicon Valley, some of them are young, but some of them are not as young. Mm-hmm. Most um, media companies, yeah, you know, I could see one more of oh, those this week. Oh, there's some, there's been some more stuff at NPR. Oh I, God, NPR. I, there's like no managers left, or the managers are now all women, basically. Well, that's well, that's, that's, that's a start. That's one solution. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As of our taping on Tuesday morning, there has been a new allegation of groping against Al Franken. Same old ones against Bill Clinton. John Conyers, an amazing story in BuzzFeed about allegations against the senior member of the house john conyers and a, and a really appalling kind of cover-up of a payoff that he made to a woman who had roy moore however seems to have stabilized i feel like roy moore has has skated past thanks to people turning their attention to to franken and to charlie rose so there's been a lot of talk on the left zoe that in the case uh, that franken franken who who whose crimes seem the least of all of these various crimes on a scale of like zero to Weinstein. He's, he's like a 20. Um, Is that a hundred point scale? Yeah. 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 Says you. Yeah. Well, no, I, I mean, I agree. It's really, really far from Weinstein. Um, It's, and, and I don't know, like the thing about Franken's thing was uh, there was something very bullying about that story. Like it was like he had gone to this woman and it made these advances on her. She had rebuffed him. And then he later like does this secret thing, this like shaming thing. And then he puts it in the DVD later so that she can see. It's just it's like super bullying. It's grimy. Terrible. No, it's it's like it's not. 
I'm just saying that his that what he has done is not. It's clearly not what Harvey Weinstein has done. Right? No, and right. that's a problem right. with this whole thing. I so, think is that they're all being sort of aired at the same moment as though they're the same thing. But so, but should should he resign? I have an opinion about it, but I think that something that's weird about this thing that's happening is like there's all this stuff coming out, and there's not really a proposed resolution to it. And I'm not. I don't feel like I have a sense of the thing that whoever it is, Twitter, like wants out of it with Franken. They have this convenient thing with that's the ethics investigation that seems helpful that they have that. And then like private companies like whatever the New York Times suspending Glenn Thrush, they're going to do an investigation. They're going to make a determination because he's not a public figure. He's a private guy. And it seems like with the Senate, it's I don't know. They have an ethics investigation. I don't really know what happens there. But after that, then we can decide what to do. Minnesota decides what to do. Right. I don't know. They, no, they, they the can't Senate. recall him. The yeah. Senate can suspend The Senate can, can impeach Senate him. Senate can discipline him in whatever way it wants. Okay. But but Minnesotans have to wait for the next election. They can't do a special recall. Election? I think they have recall in state elections, uh, but okay. but not in federal elections. So Jacob, do you think Franken should go? We're living through a revolution. This revolution is long overdue, and I very much welcome it. Revolutions are very messy. And revolutions inevitably go to excess. And part of that excess is a loss of proportionality about how bad different things are. Punishments are meted out unjustly. I think looking at what we know now, um, he has apologized in what I think is a genuine and persuasive way to these women. Uh, and in the case of the first one, uh, the woman tweeting from the U.S. Ocean, she accepted his apology. Um, so based on what I've seen so far, I would say, no, he shouldn't resign. But if it turns out this is more of a pattern, I think that, you know, that may change change my view of it. There is there is there a um, just a, a pure positioning argument that he should resign, that it allows the left to sort of not be accused of hypocrisy. It, it creates good optics. It, it it allows them to make a stronger case against all the other folks who are being accused and to, and to make a stronger case against Roy Moore. I mean, that sounds to me, that sounds terrible. I kind of have been uncomfortable with this entire moment, this this revolution, like just because I don't like a, a sort of public hanging, which feels like it's happening and it's not happening with something that's like reported out like in the Washington Post, but with a lot of the Me Too stories that you see, it's a lot of allegations just out there and it kind of freaks me out. But Sorry, go ahead. No, but just to say that like, so Franken resigning, not because specifically of the results of an ethics investigation, but as a sort of statement of like some bar that the Democrats are going to hold themselves to for the future, feels like we're not dealing with him as a person. And each of these people to me are very different and have different things that they've done and probably need different punishments. And so any kind of symbolic thing is, is going to make me anxious. Well, I like a public hanging better than a private hanging. <laughs> no, I mean, if you're going to get it, like the benefit mm-hmm. of a public hanging is that like, at least it has a public message. Like if you're going to mm-hmm. commit violence against somebody or you're going to commit a cr- act of cruelty or punishment, like make it as public as possible. So so po- people understand this is what's being done and this is the consequence of action if it's done privately. I mean, this is what the problem with all these little settlements are. Mm-hmm. Is that we don't, in fact, see people don't have the consequence. So I, 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 I agree. I, the settlements, the settlements have created a culture of like way too much protection for people that are harassing. That's totally true. And I feel like I'm literally myself 
in the middle of a kind of transition of how I'm thinking about this. But my first reaction that there's all these guys names out there and there's only due process for some of them. Mm -hmm. Like, I just don't like the trend of that. It seems okay at this moment, but I, I just keep waiting for this other thing to happen where somebody gets like totally screwed. Jacob, where does this leave us with Bill Clinton, who does appear to have, I mean, he's committed serial adultery. That seems fairly clear, but it also seems to have committed serial forms of harassment. Bill Clinton and Donald Trump should both resign. And I'll take I'll take that deal. I mean, no, look, I mean, I think I think there was a case that Bill Clinton should have resigned at the time. I thought there was a case that Bill Clinton should have resigned. I did not think there was a strong case for impeaching him. And in fact, the Republicans did not include Monica Lewinsky, what he did with Monica Lewinsky as an article of impeachment, because even they acknowledged that that was not an impeachable offense. But Bill Clinton, you know, she didn't, Monica Lewinsky didn't feel she was harassed by Bill Clinton. She felt she was harassed by the accusers of Bill Clinton. We have these other two cases. Why should he have resigned? Why did you, if he should? Because it was because, because using, using his office to seduce a 20 year old intern was outrageous behavior. It was embarrassing. It dragged the country through a year of horror. And he had a perfectly capable vice president who had nothing of that taint about him who okay. could have who who could have stepped so, in. So there are three different Clinton crimes. And there's the crime of he had sex outside of his marriage with somebody in a non-coercive way. That's a, what, a twenty year old what, intern what, in his office. Number two is that he he was having sex with a twenty year old intern in his office, even though he was not harassing her. Number three is that he also seems to have coerced women, possibly raped one, certainly like done some really, really aggressive things towards three women who've made very credible claims. So your view is that that that, that third one we just didn't know about and therefore we couldn't have – he shouldn't have resigned for that because that third one is the one that is the worst. We can't really relitigate each of these things now. At the time, I thought there was a good case for Bill Clinton to resign. I now even more strongly wish he had. And I think, you know, our standard is now coming around to what it should have been in 1998, which is that for any number of reasons, he did things that were totally unacceptable, let alone by a president of the United States. So, yeah, Bill Clinton should have resigned. Fuck yeah. It's a weird thing to remember what the framing was around it. Like, I... As as a high school student at the time, I don't remember, you know, a 20 year old seemed like an older person to me, actually. <laughs> like, I just don't remember it at all ever talking about that imbalance. I only remember talking about infidelity and should the president's marriage be the business of the American people. And then I remember the thing about Mitterrand's mistress and the <laughs> wife cr- crying together and being like, well, that's how we should do it. Just like in France. Why like, can't we be sophisticated I, like the front? I was not yeah. a, a, a subtle thinker, but like. I just it's it's bizarre to me now that the framing was around the marriage right, right. and it Adultery wasn't about the, the victims. Yeah. Right. But these nuances are important. I mean, I felt he should have resigned, but I didn't feel he should be impeached mm-hmm. because I think it's important to preserve the clarity of what impeachment is for. But uh, so he should resign because he engaged in immoral behavior or no, was not, no, not immoral behavior, the, an he, abusive, pay, abusive pay. behavior that was not Im- impeachable. Right. Um, and, you know, I don't know you. I mean, you were on slate at the time. I mean, I just remember that whole thing. And, you know, as soon as that story broke, I was so angry at him. 
And I was also so upset. I was Slate's political correspondent at the time. And I went to Michael Kinsley, who was our boss at the time. And I actually said, I can't face covering this. Please assign me to That's something else. That's why I had to be our political correspondent. Year. And you had to take my job. <laughs> That's because why I went I to write a, an art column for a year. I did not. Uh, you wrote an art column? I wrote an, an arts column so I could not cover this for a year. And I have to say it was a great choice. Of, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry that the, 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 gr- the consequences time. fell on you. It was you. really fun. Why do you think... Zoe, maybe I'm mm. wrong about this, but it does feel to me that Roy Moore is going to skate now. Yeah, I, I think he's going to win. I'm not like very imaginative in the way that I should be now that Trump is the president. Like I just I'm like, how could Alabama have a Democratic Senate? Like it just seems too, so unlikely to me that like, of course, Roy Moore is going to win because it's Alabama. But I mean, surprising things happen. I do imagine the Senate like not seating him. I think that could happen. I don't know how that plays out. Like, I don't know. That seems like the ultimate Washington elites, like giving the finger to the middle of the country in a way that seems so politically unwise. They're just going to be really caught in this. I have to say the Roy Moore story, like it's it's a disturbing story. Obviously, what what Roy Moore is accused of doing and seems to have done by all the reporting. But just like the way that it's laid things bare is kind of incredible. Like the the deal that Bannon made and the kind, you know, like that, that Bannon, this was Bannon's candidate and that he was going to push him against Luther Strange. And Luther Strange was already like really far right. And, you know, like, and then McConnell being like, okay, let's welcome Roy Moore in because he wants to get Bannon's base on his team. Like it just shows a lot of sort of Freudian bargain. Fa- Faustian? Yes. I was like, it's not Freudian. I think Roy Moore is in the Roy Roy, Moore's Roy in the Moore has a Freudian situation that he <laughs> yeah. has to work out. The Republicans have like a Faustian bargain that they've made yeah. that they wound up with him. And I, I kind of have enjoyed it's so like just bare, naked, like where are you gonna take where are you gonna stand on this? That that there's something that I, I I've I've enjoyed watching about it. He's following the Trump playbook, which is just deny everything, however implausibly. And mm-hmm. that gives your supporters a cover in a way because they can they don't have to deal with you admitting it the right. way Al Franken has with the much more minor charges. Uh, if he wins, I I don't think the I don't think Mitch McConnell cannot seat him. I think they got to seat him. You okay. can't you can't the Senate. It would be extraordinary for them to override the the knowing judgment of Alabama's voters. Okay. Uh, but it's also the politics are all going to be tied up with the tax cut, of course, because the the one thing they they've got Luther Strange in there now to vote for it. Roy Moore would presumably vote for it, but they can't let this turn into a vacancy. Right. Whatever happens. Well, to also to unseat vote. to unseat him, they need two thirds of the Senate to vote. To refuse to seat him. And that also means that you have to get Democrats to vote for it, which maybe they do just for the dignity of the Senate. But maybe they the Democrats should want Roy Moore in there because they can run against Roy Moore. Mm -hmm. So Donald Trump also just to say, like, he also has a bunch of accusers and it does seem odd. And then the White House has been like, okay, the American people have already spoken on that. But it just seems to me if there's a Senate investigation over Al Franken, that there ought to be some sort of ethics investigation over what the president has been accused of doing before he became the president. I, I know that's not how it, it technically works, but the 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 disconnect is is seeming more and more uncomfortable to me. Yeah. I mean, we we talked about this on the show last week. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's priced in. His boorishness is priced into Trump. People 
expected of him. And also there isn't the Senate has this institution around it where it, it deci- it's a club which decides what members it wants to have. That's right. The presidency is a is sui generis. Like it just is you're the president. Mm-hmm. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's a bad time for magazines, Jacob Weisberg tells me. Uh, Rodale just sold its stable of magazines to Hearst. It's a uh, bicycling and runner's world. Rolling Stone is priced to move. It is trying to, the Wenner family is trying to sell it. Time Inc., which is the Cadillac of magazine companies, is on the block. It is likely to be snapped up, or maybe not snapped up, slowly chewed over by Meredith and the Koch brothers. Vanity Fair is expected to start laying off huge numbers of people now that it's it's uh, replacing its editor. Find the uh, through line there, Jacob. What's the through line? Well, this was a booming media industry like the American newspaper industry that um, was started to enter into a period of decline. And then the decline accelerated to something that started to look in the last couple weeks in particular like collapse, where every one of the big magazine companies is in severe contraction mode, shutting down magazines, laying off people selling and consolidating. I just feel like the magazine era, suddenly like the newspaper era, is over. I'm kind of sad about it. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure I agree with all of that. I think magazines have been, in my mind, the greatest form of media for the past century. I love magazines. I They survived pretty nicely into the digital age. They've been, they've had a pretty decent run in the last 20 years. They haven't, you know, maybe in the last couple of years it's gotten bad, but it hasn't been catastrophic the way it was for newspaper because they because magazines didn't lose their endemic advertising business the way newspapers did where they lost classifieds instantly in local retail almost as soon and i don't know they have lost it now though but they're they've lost some of it like some magazines have lost some of it the atlantic is still the most important sort of generator of ideas and conversation in the country. The New Yorker is a close second. So here's the thing. The the magazines you and I read, like The Atlantic and The New Yorker, which were thought to be kind of marginal businesses, turn out to be decent businesses because they have dedicated readers who actually pay for the content. In a way, it's the more consumer magazine world, the men's magazines, the women's magazines, the shelter magazines, the celebrity magazines that have gone through – this steep, steep decline and are the ones seem, seeming to be, you know, shutting down. What's shutting down? I mean, there were most con- recently Teen Vogue. I Teen think. Vogue is Teen, Teen Vogue. Vogue that is was too down. bad. Yeah. What else is shutting down? If you think of Condé Nast, I mean, Condé Nast has a lot of room to trim. Like the Vanity Fair office is is there's plenty of room to make it less nice. The cafeteria <laughs> at Condé Nast could be a lot less nice <laughs> and they could still put out really good magazines. Hearst Tower doesn't need to be. You know, they could they could rent out a few of those floors of Hearst Tower and and make people work in slightly smaller spaces. They could squeeze the editor's desk, the editor's office at Vanity Fair and still they could put 
They could put all of Slate in the editor's office at Vanity Fair. It all will happen. I mean, they're going to get they're going to move out of those lavish offices. That's just a stage in the in the contraction. Anyway, you know, we can d- debate how quickly it's happening or I guess I mean, you really think what I'm talking about is not a real phenomenon. You think magazines are kind of doing OK? Zoe, have you done some research on this? <laughs> I read all the stuff you guys gave me, and I Googled, you know, economics of magazines. I'm sitting high up here yeah, for my good, perch on good. public radio. Do that. You know, <laughs> the podcasting boom, yeah. and I don't know what you guys were talking about. Um, I just, I couldn't find. You, you kid, magazines don't have those lavish podcasting budgets. <laughs> Listen, you should dude. say, if this American life, like, what, what's the expense accounts? <laughs> the expense accounts? Yeah. No, it's I mean. It's just incredible. It is. And is the way Ira dresses is The just... town car is waiting for you? <laughs> It's just a new suit every day with Ira Glass. I I, I look. I tried to find a reason to care about this. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not, and I'm not trying to be snarky about it. Like I was like, just be snarky. I, I I couldn't find it because the thing that seemed because I'm I'm reading so much great stuff. Like there's just so much good content. Plus one to that out there yeah. that I, I'm not feeling a loss that you're feeling. You know, and I was like. I don't know. I don't I'm not going to advocate for the economic model, say, of of billionaires buying things and just losing money over it. But like I, when I look at what's happening at The Washington Post, there's just a ton of great writers and they're hiring even more great writers and they're investigating big stories. Like, I'm thrilled. I love what's happening at The Washington Post. And I do want people to be paid for their writing because I want to be paid for my writing. But the, but the culture that the kind of like West Village celebrity editor, frankly, white, Yale-ish culture, like that that's deteriorating. <laughs> I just like, it's hard for I, me I to get upset. I won't take that personally. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I just, I don't feel upset. So you're not, let me pop, put it a little differently. You're not <laughs> upset about Time Magazine laying off sort of all of its writers and editors and being taken over by uh, a different company financed by the Koch brothers who want to use it as some sort of political tool. No. I'm not upset. I Newsweek, Newsweek's already yeah, Newsweek's know, gone. Dead, gone. Right, U.S. Right. News is gone. Yeah. That that particular form of magazine seems not to have a reason to exist in the in this age. So what's the big deal? There are great writers at Time, and I want them to be writing, but I don't feel like they need to write for Time. And, well, and Time he, as a form factor does not seem that also the Koch brothers. The, I mean, I don't know the Koch brothers. They fund a lot of public radio. <laughs> they just like they don't. They, <laughs> they like they fund the Met. Really? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I know they fund the Met, but <laughs> um, or or David does. It's I, I'm not I'm not sure <laughs> that uh that they're that they're going to use it as a as a political. <laughs> They, they don't want you to be sure, but <laughs> were, but that's that, why do you think they're bought? That's why I don't buying. know. They fund the hell out of marketplace. I just I just like <laughs> so, I don't know. I love that you're so. In the I'm tank. so. I'm I'm just like I, I do come from like this little universe that's doing fine, and I don't want to be myopic right. about the bigger world of journalism. I consume journalism all day long. That is all I do. Like I don't feel like magazines are dead because I read Instapaper all day. I just look at Twitter. There's big articles. I save them to my Instapaper and I read them. And like, that's literally how I spend 90% of my day. But Jacob, you're not making the case that journalism is in trouble. I'm you're ma- making the case I'm making, that I, the I magazine there, is a form factor. I think there are, two, there are two issues. One is that magazines, as one of the repositories of our common culture, are shrinking. They're not gone, but they're, they're, but they're drastically shrinking. And, and this sort of common reference point, you know, and even making a kind of larger theme out of it, the idea of a kind of common re- shared reality and common truth is fading. And part of that is that if you d- you don't have these consensus 
politically moderate kind of range of of news sources that people agree on and that the contraction in every media industry now hitting magazines very strongly is a factor in that. The other is that to the point about journalists and journalism, I agree there are very healthy things going on, including podcasts. There are very unhealthy things going on, and particularly for the older journalists who write for magazines who aren't never necessarily made a good transition to digital media or podcasting mm-hmm. or whatever. The existence is becoming very marginal. Yeah, they're still doing journalism, but they're but it's it's boy, it's hard, tough to make a living for freelance journalists. I did this story for Slate um, three or four years ago. I came across a bound volume it was in a bookstore in vermont a bound volume of life magazine from 1945 and i just it was great i bought it and i read it and it was it was incredible it was i cannot i don't think any magazine has ever been better in history than life magazine was in the summer of 1945 like every you can't even imagine the stuff that was in there all there's these iconic photos of the nurse being kissed in Times square is you know is published there the great essay um now I'm forgetting the the essay, which is which prefigures the the information age, the the seminal essay that what's his name wrote about the information age appears. <laughs> it's it's just like in, amazing. Every issue is amazing, and you look and it and it speaks with its collective we. It's optimistic. It's all about the technology that's going to reshape post post war American life. And the magazine was circulating to it had a four million circ, which was the equivalent of a thirteen million copy circulation today, which no magazine comes close to that. That was a yeah. That was a time where magazines were the defining medium. They were the defining visual medium because TV hadn't come in. But that was 75 years ago, Jacob. I think what you're, t- you're talking about a phenomenon, and you found a particularly good example of it, but that goes broadly from the 1920s into the 1980s or 90s. Right, and and it's it's true that they that magazines. Be, I mean, when did Time close? Uh, Life closed the first time in the seventies. Um, you know, the the those mainstream magazines started to become less touchstones for that mainstream American culture then, but they've still been with us. I mean, there's still been a Time magazine in the doctor's office but, that you pick it up, but, and it's, so there's not a Time magazine. There's an Atlantic. The Atlantic is is having a heyday. That it hasn't had for 150 years. The Atlantic's a good magazine. It's you know it doesn't kind of have the visual thing. It doesn't you know doesn't support photojournalism. It, I mean they're just they're different. Look, fewer is worse. We were you know we're keeping some and there, losing others. I I would be shocked to discover there are fewer fewer magazines being published today than there were 30 years ago. Shocked because it's there's a ton of niche magazines for train hobbyists and or airbnb publishes a magazine those aren't Casper well publishes it's a magazine. printed magazines those are those are, aren't going to be fewer of those are printed magazines they're sites for the no for airbnb those. publishes a printed magazine okay. <laughs> yeah, and you that's know. and that's that's the new life magazine well i don't think it's the new life magazine, <laughs> but it, you know there there i don't think there are fewer magazines published we can all right i'm not sure what we're arguing about or whether we actually disagree but, but i i do feel a little like troubled though by the idea i don't i don't think that there's like the, that there's like a shared culture that we're losing through losing these magazines. Like, I just feel like that's it, it's like a pretty narrow group of people that we're sharing that culture anyway. I think that my my feeling about it is like, is there great writing that is out there that people are paying for? And I feel much less concerned about like the vehicle in which the writing is as long as the writing is there. And I, I it's hard for me to see. Like what we've lost if time isn't in the doctor's office, because I think a lot of people weren't reading time anyway. 
You know what I mean? And and certainly the Atlantic, like I'm glad the Atlantic is doing well, but it's not it's not read by the vast majority of the country. I am alone in my nostalgia. <laughs> I I'm I'm glad you brought it up though because it was helpful for me to think about like my relationship to all this writing and like how did I get it and what vehicle did it come in and and what did I want? Also, and, and I concluded allowed, I didn't really care. It but. allowed Zoe to talk about think about how great it was to be in podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're uh, sitting in the doctor's office, not reading Time magazine and scrolling through your phone, scrolling through your phone, what are you going to be chattering about to your seatmate, Jacob Weisberg? I'd like to rec- recommend the stuff on my phone. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> really interesting stuff on my phone. Um, no, I am reading a political biography. Since Dickerson isn't here, I'll do what he might have done. Um, my friend Noah Feldman's new biography of James Madison, which is called The Three Lives of James Madison, Ooh. is the most stimulating political book that I have read in as long as I can remember. Because Madison was a young genius obsessed with the idea of constitution making and government structure, who in his early 20s started designing the American government. And almost every debate we're having now about politics comes back in some way or another to Madison's visions and the questions Madison was thinking about in the 1770s and 1780s. And, you know, we've been on this national Hamilton bender, thanks to the wonderful (laughs) musical, and I loved Hamilton. Uh, But if you read this this biography, it really starts to redress the balance. And honestly, you got to admit, Madison was a way more boring dude Mm -hmm. But he was way more important to our country than Hamilton was. Was he nutty like he comes across in the musical? Is that, is that true? No. The, I think the portrait in the musical is pretty unfair. I mean, the, you know, uh-huh. it's it's part of building up Hamilton at, at the expense of, of these other characters. But he wasn't nutty. He was... He was bookish. You know, he wasn't, he didn't fight in the revolution. He was kind of not very healthy. He never left the country, wouldn't take an ocean voyage. He kind of, you know, would send these messages to Thomas Jefferson saying, you got to bring me back some more books about France so I can read about other countries' constitutions. He was a constitution nerd. But isn't the, uh, isn't, I I can't remember, but I I always thought from that line in Hamilton the musical that wasn't there something of mercury poisoning or that he, he had some yeah he had what some is the kind line? of you're mad as a hat or mad as a something yeah that, did he go did he did he like actually lose his mind later I haven't got that far yet okay no, no fair <laughs> enough I'm gonna read the book I'm still in the middle of it <laughs> but I recommend it that sounds really good uh, Zoe what is your chatter okay so I I have this I I love um, the Gabfest, and I listen almost every week. Um, but I do feel that the cocktail chatter is not that like catty. It's really nice, you know. And the cocktail parties that I'm at is it's a little more like gossipy, and so I wanted to bring something a little bit like just a little cattier to the nice. table. So, okay, so there's so it's it's basically I don't know if you guys know the writer Kevin Williamson who writes for the National Review. Mm-hmm. He's a brilliant. Writer, I love this guy. He's sort of cultural yeah. commentator. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Fair enough. I'm getting there. Okay, so Williamson, remember this week? Was it this week or last week when uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin and his wife Louise Linton were photographed with this like roll of uncut dollar bills in this totally amazing Monopoly money caricature way? And so Kevin writes this thing like he just was so mad about it in this way that I was like. There's the Treasury Secretary with a bunch of money, like whatever, (laughs) you know, but like he wrote Steve Mnuchin and Louise Linton embarrassing. That was his headline. But then he gets into this like 
takedown of Louise Linton. Like, she just seems like such a loser. So does Mnuchin. But she, like, he really hates, he has this thing where he just, like, really hates people that are sort of in their position via some kind of privilege or whatever. And so Linton, basically, he's like, put an asterisk, you know, Mnuchin is married to Louise Linton, a Scottish actress. Put an asterisk next to that job description, though. She's an actress in the same way a lot of trust fund kids are entrepreneurs and business owners. And a lot of dim children of CEOs are executive vice presidents. And he just like goes on tearing her apart. But I do want to read this thing that she did, which I think is like super scandalous that he points out, which I don't know how he figured. It's probably not that hard to find, but it's just so mean. So basically, Louise Linton, our Treasury Secretary's wife. Remember, the only other Treasury Secretary's wife you can probably name is Eliza Schuyler. And she's (laughs) great. Okay, but this woman published a book. In the Shadow of Congo, a memoir about the semester abroad she spent in war-torn Zambia, a tale replete with child soldiers, Hutu-Tutsi ethnic warfare, monsoons, and the general horror of the Congolese war that beset the, quote, angel-haired, her description of herself, visitor from the United Kingdom. There were many problems with that account, including the fact that the Congolese war wasn't fought in Zambia, which has never, in fact, been at war. But if it had been at war, that war wouldn't have been the Hutu-Tutsi conflict, which happened in Rwanda, which isn't where Linton was. She was down in Zambia, which does not have the monsoons she claimed to have endured. The book was a gross and embarrassing example of the white savior genre and a particularly illiterate and dishonest one at that. It has been withdrawn from publication. So Kevin Williamson is a really... um, He's from the he's National Review. He's a pretty conservative guy on the right. He seems to have like no friends because all he does is tear apart the right. But because of his views, the left also hates him. I am a huge <laughs> fan and I, I am like not a guy. fan of Louise Linton. Louise Linton does seem like an absolutely terrible person. Yeah. But she's like even a comic... among third tier Scottish celebrities, she's low. Yeah. <laughs> she's like a comic book villain. Yes. Yeah. But he's a comic book villain, too. Yeah. The yeah. two of so... them together. So and also she was very good at doing what she wanted to do, which apparently was marry somebody incredibly rich and live a really lavish lifestyle. So she's she may not be a successful actress, but she is very good at her chosen profession. That's which true. Is gold digger. And he doesn't really give her credit for that aspect. So thank you yeah. for bringing that. My, that was great. Oh, thank good. you. That's more catty, more catty chatter. Think about it. Think about it, Dickerson. I know, you know, he's 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 very worldly in his head. But you were actually being nice because you were endorsing a really good writer. I am right. You're endorsing Kevin writer. Williamson. Yeah. 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 Yes. Huzzah, Kevin Williamson. Fan. All right. Uh, my chatter, my chatter is really nice, but it's very New York centric. But because uh, I had an incredible, incredibly great New York outing this weekend to Dead Horse Bay. Have you guys ever been to Dead Horse Bay? No, but I like I like the so name of it. Dead Horse Bay is this um, beach uh, in in southern Brooklyn uh, near Floyd Bennett Field near on the way to the Rockaways. And it's built, uh, what it is, it's, it was essentially, uh, as I understand it, a 19th century landfill and a garbage dump. And so in the 19th century, maybe early 20th century, there's just a huge amount of trash 19th century trash dumped here and then sand and and it's it became a beach so it's a very mm-hmm. nice beach and over time what happens is the waves are washing and exposing all this trash and bringing it up on the beach and so it's an unbelievable scavenging place so it's filled with 19th century glass bottles and 19th century shoes and dead horse bay because there was a i guess a I horse rendering fan so 19th century horse bones you'll find these little sawn off wow. bits of bones some person i was walking by had just found a, a necklace made of buffalo head nickels wow and it's it's 
amazing. It's it's not beautiful because it's kind of like scrubbed up with all this broken glass and you do not want to go there barefoot. It's just all broken glass. But there are these beautiful, beautiful bottles and other things to find. And I think technically it's illegal to scavenge because it's a federal park, but it's, <laughs> right, it's exactly. fascinating and a super cool expedition. That so sounds like a great outing. Yeah. It is a, it's a great outing. You it's, sold me on Dead Horse Bay. I'll take it. Yeah. That. Everyone who went, I like include, you know, for everyone from the, the eight-year-old to the 80-year-old had a ball. Before we go to credits, I want to just say a word about another Slate podcast that has just launched. It's called If Then, Will Remus and April Glazer, who are your technology writers. Jacob's nodding. This is such vigorously. a good show already. Like the first episode was already, I'm totally hooked on it. Why are you totally hooked on it? Because it's just the, the two of them are super smart and it's a great conversation about technology. And, you know, I think we're at a moment now where this is just sort of talking about that the way you guys talk on the political gab fest about political issues. I just like the two of them a lot. And so they do interviews. They have conversations. It's called If Then. It posts every Thursday and it's just getting underway. So listen to If Then. Give it a try. That's our show for today. The Gab Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Jason DeLeon helped us out today, engineered us. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at at SlateGabFest. Tweet some conundrums to us if you have a great conundrum for us to talk about at our Boston Live show. For Jacob Weisberg and Zoe Chase, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. And John and Emily and I will be back with you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.